And let me pray now before we look to study uh, Joshua chapter 1. God, it's the beginning of another year. And uh, there's a lot going on in our world. There's saber rattling across the globe. There is a pandemic that won't seem to let us off the mat. There are divisions in our country and around the world. But we've gathered here today with your people in some sense, even if we don't know you and don't trust you, but in some sense we've showed up today because we believe that something can happen here, that you can speak to your people, that you can speak to our hearts. And so, God, I pray that you would allow me to get out of the way that you would speak, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you had a good New Year. Uh, My family did. We traveled to Dallas, where I was raised. My parents still live there. And while we were there, there was a football game. And uh, if you know me at all, you know that I am a fan of the University of Alabama. Don't hate me, I know. Uh, It's obnoxious. Uh, But there was a football game that was in Dallas, the Cotton Bowl, the college football semifinal. And yes, there's a game tomorrow night that I very much plan to be watching. Uh, But we're in Dallas, and I have a friend from my high school years who is on the board of directors for the Cotton Bowl. He reached out and said, hey, I've got tickets. Would you like some? And he gifted us, he gifted us eight tickets tickets. Super generous. Now, when I buy tickets to go to a sports event, uh, I'm usually not trying to get on the 50-yard line. I'm just kind of trying to get in the stadium. True story, the last time I was at a major Alabama football game, uh, I literally was in the second to last row at the top of the stadium in the end zone. I'd bought my own tickets. That's where I sit when I buy my own tickets, okay? So that's my mindset going into this game. So we go to AT&T Stadium. If you want to know what a billion and a half dollars can buy, go to AT&T Stadium. Jerry World, Home of the Cowboys, hosted national championships, hosted a Super Bowl. One of the great venues in all of sports and entertainment. And so we show up with our tickets and we enter. Now we made them, it's an enormous facility. It can seat over 100,000 people. And we showed up and we made the mistake of entering on the wrong side from where our seats were. That was a mistake because among our eight, we had two six-year-olds. We had an eight-year-old. And we had my 78-year-old dad who was one year removed from open heart surgery. Now, someone had told me that the middle of the stadium, and this is true, that there's a club section. And so to get from one side to the other, you have to go all the way up. Like, it was like, I can't remember how many flights of stairs. All the way up to the fourth level, go all the way across, 120 yards or whatever, 150 yards, and then all the way back down. There's no escalators. There's no elevators. It's a long walk, two six-year-olds, an eight-year-old, and a 78-year-old man. We must have walked a mile just to get around. I'm leading the charge. I literally have a little hat on a stick, like going ahead. Everybody's following me, Right. But everybody's getting frustrated with me, especially the mothers and my father. We get to the other side, we get to the other side, and the signage seems to indicate that we have overshot our section. (laughs) And I I mean, my dad, I am feeling it, right? And so I asked my sweet wife, Alice, and I said, please, can you go beg the guard at the club to let us walk back through to get to our section? So she goes up, and he says, may I see your tickets? And he looks at our tickets, he says, Your tickets are club level. (laughs) And we go in. And friends, let me tell you about club level at AT AT&T Stadium. It is the land of milk and honey. (laughs) It is so good. I mean, you can order food to your seats. They've got literally sushi. They've got craft. Everything imaginable. I mean, even the back of your seats, there's a little roller to massage your back. I made that part up. But it was so, it was so good. 
And friends, I had no concept for how good the gift I had been received, how generous my friend was. And because I had no concept, I did not know how to accept. I did not know how to inherit the gift. Now, this is a new sermon series, selected passage from the book of Joshua. And I'm very excited. I'm excited about today's passage because today, and really the whole book of Joshua, is about how to believe in, how to trust God's goodness, how to inherit the promises of God that are ours in Christ, to trust just how good God is. So what I'm going to do, there's a lot to cover today, including introducing this book. And I'm just going to give you an outline. And we've got all the kids in here. This is a great day to cover a lot of ground, right? Um, but I want to look at God's leader, God's land, and how to lay hold of an inheritance. God's leader, God's land, how to lay hold of an inheritance. First, God's leader. Now, before we get to Joshua, we've got to understand a little bit of redemptive history and situate us where we are, okay? Joshua is the sixth book in the Jewish scriptures, the Christian Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, the sixth book. The story of God's people starts in Genesis. God creates our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebel, plunging the human race into sin and brokenness. And then God begins his redemption. He begins his renewal project with a man whose name eventually becomes Abraham. He calls him to leave a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which is in modern-day Iraq, to come to the land of promise, which we know as modern-day Israel or Palestine. And in Genesis 12... 15 and 17, a bunch of different places, God promises Abraham and his descendants that they will, quote, inherit the land, inherit the land. Now, significantly, when Abraham dies, he does not own a square foot of the land. He's a nomad. He does not own land. The only thing he owns is a burial plot for his wife. Now, after several generations of nomads who have no possession in the land of promise, which is the story of Genesis, God's people, because of a famine, are removed to Egypt, which is to their south. And they spend 400 years in Egypt, God's people do, 400 years. And they grow into a mighty nation, but they end up as slaves of the Egyptians. Until God raises up this great leader, unparalleled in God's people, a man named Moses, who leads God's people out of bondage into Egypt with the goal of getting to the promised land. This is the story of the ten plagues. This is the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, right? And so Moses leads the people out, and they head back to what is the land of of promise. This generation gets all the way to the promised land in a very short time, but not unlike me at AT&T Stadium, they do not realize or trust the goodness of God's gift. They doubt God, and so they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, okay? Now, during those 40 years, there's a lot of sad stories, but one encouraging story during those 40 years is the story of Joshua. Joshua was kind of an assistant. He was a general underneath Moses. He had some military success. Most memorably, when they first come to the promised land, God, uh, Moses sends 12 spies into the land. The 12 spies, they check it out. They come back. Ten of the spies say it's an amazing place, but there's giants in the land. There's no way we can take this land. Moses, jo, excuse me, Joshua, another guy named Caleb, they come back from spying and say, yes, there's giants, but God can take this land for us. We can do this. They're the only ones who believe God's promise. And because Joshua and Caleb trust God, they were allowed to see the promised land. Every other Israelite dies in the wilderness, wandering around, including Moses. Think about this. Of all of the nation of Israel, only Joshua and Caleb saw both the exodus and the entry into the promised land. They're the only two. So with that a little bit as a background, that's where we are in the story. Verse 1, look with me. And boys and girls, you can look with me too, okay? Verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, 
the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Now I want to stop right here and I want you to notice something. Moses is called servant of the Lord and his name is used twice and Joshua is called Moses' assistant. I mean, Joshua, let's put the, Joshua gets dissed in the very first sentence of his own book, okay? Now, but Moses is a big deal. Moses is a big deal. In Exodus 3, he had saw God face to face in a burning bush. He had faced down Pharaoh, had Moses. He called down plagues. He led the people out of Egypt. He personally received the Ten Commandments. And when he went on the Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, when he came down from that mountain, his face glowed. Okay, this is a guy who saw God. Deuteronomy 34 says there was no one like Moses who saw God face to face. And here in chapter 1 of Joshua, I mean, he's already dead, but he's being called the servant of the Lord. And Joshua, kind of pathetic, is called Moses' assistant. Talk about the damnation of faint praise. And then there's this, then there's this. When Joshua was born, he wasn't, his mama didn't call him Joshua. His mama called him Hosea. But guess who changed his name? Moses. It'd be like, what if I came in one day and said, I want to change Nick's name? You know, like, you know, like I just think, it, you know. But here's the deal. What do y'all want it to be? Now, um, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but Moses changed his name to Joshua. In Hebrew, the word Joshua is pronounced Yehoshua. Okay, stay with me. God's name is Yahweh in the Old Testament. And so Yahweh is literally in Joshua's new name when it means God saves. And then there's this. The Greek translation of Joshua is Iesus, which in English is, you guessed it, Jesus. Joshua is a Hebraic way of saying Jesus, God saves. So Moses is honoring Joshua with his name change. But the point at this, at this point in, Luke, in Joshua chapter 1 is Moses is the big dog, which might make verse 2 terrifying. If you're a person of Israel, Moses, my servant, is dead. And as my former professor Ralph Davis said, the Moses, the incomparable, is dead. So what do you do? Do you weep? Do you wail? Do you wait? What do you do? No. Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Friends, God's faithfulness does not hinge on the achievement or the giftedness of his people. It does not hinge on the giftedness or the abilities of his servants. And it does not evaporate in the face of the funeral of great leaders or in the face of raging waters or uh, fierce enemies. Moses dies, but God's promise lives. God buries one servant and raises another up. There is no one indispensable. There is no one indispensable, not even Moses. So this brings us, that's God's leader, Joshua, who's being called to lead these people. Let's look at the story of God's land. Land is a huge idea. In fact, if you were to outline, I'd encourage you to do this. Uh, write this down and sometime this week read the entire book of Joshua. If you were to outline the book of Joshua, here's how you'd outline it. The first five chapters are preparing to enter the land. Chapters 6 to 12 are taking the land. Chapters 13 to 21 are apportioning the land. And chapters 22 to 24 are how to hold on to the land. The book of Joshua, like much of the Old Testament, is about the land. Look with me again, verses 2 and 3. Read along with me. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. 
And then verse 4 is kind of a map actually to be fulfilled generations later. But you've got to understand, this is a climactic moment in the history of redemption on the banks of this river. Think about this. The promise to Abraham had been almost 600 years before, right? This has always been in the people of God's mind and in their imagination. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, the phrase inherit the land occurs over 60 times. Over 60 times. And that's 400 years after Moses. This is large in the people's imagination. For 500 plus years, this nation of people had been landless. They had been slaves and they had been nomads. Joshua himself had been a land, he was born as a landless slave in Egypt, like the generations of his ancestors, and then he'd spent most of his adult life doing nothing but wander around in the wilderness without a home, nowhere to call home. And now this group of people who have never known a home, they've all, all they've done is wander in the wilderness, they are looking across a river, a river to a land that has been promised to their people for 600 years. Can you imagine what that felt like? They've been slaves. They've been nomads. They've never, they nor their grandparents, their great-grandparents, none of them have owned land. And now they're saying, just cross over and you will own this land. I tried to think of a historical equivalent. William the Conqueror, D-Day, Saladin, none of those compare. This moment, this moment, all of Joshua, all the Israelites, nomads and slaves, they're on the verge of what Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses himself had been waiting for. They are on the verge of the promised land. The land is a big deal. And there's three things I want us to see about this land. The third is the most important. But first, there's this. God cares about the land. God cares about our physical lives. Our physical lives. It's not just spiritual. It's so easy to spiritualize our faith. It's okay to care about and pray for tangible things. Homes, provision, children, health. God loves to be generous and give good gifts to his people. Tickets to football games. I mean, Deuteronomy chapter 10, this is what it says when God is described in the land. When the Lord God brings you into the land, that great and good cities you did not build, houses filled of good things, cisterns you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. He's going to give this all to his people. God loves to give his people gifts and even tangible physical gifts. God loves to take care of his people. But then there's this second about the land. So important to understand. The land is a gift. It is a gift from God. It is not earned. It is not even conquered. It is given. Look with me at the end of verse 2. God says, go into the land that, quote, I am giving. And then verse 6, inherit the land that I swore to your fathers. And you see this throughout the New Testament, throughout the scriptures. God is the owner of the land. The land belongs to him. And it's a gift to his people. It's a gift to be stewarded and enjoyed. It's so important for us to remember. The application for us is to remember that all of our tangible blessings, all of them, they are a gift from God. Our homes, our net worth, our money, our tickets to football games, whatever it is that we have is a gift from God to be enjoyed and to be stewarded. It's not ours. It's his. He gives it to us. So the land is a gift. But third and most importantly about the land, especially for those reading this as Christians, is the land points forward to Jesus himself. The land points forward to Jesus himself. As Christians, our heritage is not, our inheritance is not a physical land. Just as we no longer have a temple and we no longer have a priesthood, we have something better, Jesus himself. We no longer have the land, we have something better. 
Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the way the Apostle Peter says it in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1 says this, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our inheritance is Christ himself. Our inheritance is Christ himself. But don't we have something in common? And don't, I think we see this, we have something in common with these Israelites from 3,000 years ago. Although we may have homes, we feel unsettled. Although we may feel free in some ways, we know that we're enslaved. We feel duty-bound and joyless, unsettled, nomads and slaves, like me at AT AT&T Stadium. But we can leave and lean into the promise, which brings us to the last and the most important here. How do we, thirdly, lay hold of an inheritance? How do we lay hold of the inheritance that is ours in Christ? Now, God has promised the land. He has given the land. Look with me, verse 6. Be strong and courageous, God says. Verse 6, God, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. The land has been given. But the Israelites must still put their feet in that water and cross over that river. They must have the soles of their feet march through the land. They must really march around Jericho. They had to take hold of the land to inherit the gift. Because inheriting is not always easy. All of us, we know people, or at least we know stories of people, when the second or third generation, they have squandered their inheritance. And the same thing can be true for us as Christians. We all know Christians. Maybe you are this person, you feel like you've squandered your inheritance as a Christian. You believe, but you're kind of limping along, living insecurely like a nomad, duty-bound and joyless like a slave, squandering an inheritance. Think just of one passage in the New Testament, very famous, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. This is your inheritance, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is your inheritance in Christ. That is the gift. Do those words describe you? Have you inherited? Have you laid hold of the inheritance? Have you inherited the gift that is yours? You see, God's people are called in this passage to inherit the land. As followers of Jesus, we are called to inherit all of the promises that are ours in Christ. Maybe the clearest articulation of this in the New Testament, is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, the first half of Ephesians chapter 1, it is all about the glories that are ours in Christ. We have been chosen. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. And Paul summarizes it in chapter 1, verse 11 of Ephesians by saying, we have obtained, you guessed it, an inheritance. The realities, forgiveness, that's our reality. But then in the second half of Ephesians chapter 1 is a prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians to lay into their inheritance. Verse 18 of Ephesians 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You see, friends, the implication of Paul's prayer, the implication of Joshua 1 and all of Joshua is that you have an inheritance And you can have an inheritance and not really lay hold of it. You can leave it behind and not really lay hold of the inheritance that is offered. So how do you 
lay hold of an inheritance. Now, I need you to stay with me. Stay with me for these next few minutes. How do you lay hold of an inheritance? There's at least three ways given in this passage. I'll go quickly through the first two and slow down for the third. The first is this. Lay hold of an inheritance by remembering that God is with you. Verse 5, the second half of it. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Whatever you're going through in life, you can take that and tag it onto that. Whatever struggle it is, God is with you. At all times, in all places, to be, when you feel alone, God is with you. When Jesus is called, comes in the New Testament, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. But the second, way to lay hold of the second way to lay hold of the inheritance is obedience. Verse 7, be strong and courageous, being careful to do all according to all that the law of my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left that you may have good success wherever you go. If you are feeling far from God, if you are not inheriting the promise, it may be because you are not obeying God's law. I remember very vividly when I was a pastor in Los Angeles talking to a man who, um, he said, I don't feel close to God. I just really don't feel his presence. And I said, well, are you sleeping with your girlfriend? He said, I am. I said, of course you don't feel close to God. You know, at this church, we talk a lot about grace. It's the main thrust. It's the name on the door. But, you know, obedience matters. And it's a pathway to feeling close to God. But hear me closely. Obedience does not matter matter as much as the third way to lay hold of the inheritance. Or let me say that more clearly. Underneath and what powers obedience and leads to presence is the third way to lay hold of an inheritance. Meditating on God's word. Meditating on God's word. Look with me, verse 8. This is worth memorizing, having your children memorize it. Verse 8. This book of law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, I don't know if you think your job is hard or I think my job is hard. I guarantee you Joshua's job is harder than all of ours. I want you to think about it. He has in front of him a military campaign. He has a political campaign. He has to keep 600,000 men, women, and children happy. He has to follow Moses. He has a lot of things to do. And the number one key to his success, according to God, meditate on my word, God says, day and night. I want you to think about the obstacles that Joshua faced. Here in chapter 1, he had to face self-doubt. I'm not Moses. I mean, he had to face it, right? The second half of chapter 1, there was a threat to the unity of God's people. Two and a half tribes wanted to leave the rest behind. Immediately, he becomes the leader, and he's, threat, he's faced with a threat of division, threat to the unity. Chapter 6 and beyond, he faces fierce enemies. In chapter 7, he faces immorality within the community that impacts the entire community. In chapter 9 of Joshua, Joshua will face deception. In chapters 13 to 21, he'll face how to divide out the land with wisdom and grace. You talk about the fog of war. This is the fog of life. And at each turn, Moses is called to do what? Meditate on God's word day and night. So what is meditation? What is meditation? Let me define it. Let me give you a couple resources and then we'll talk about it. Here's my working definition for meditation. It is taking the word of God and applying it to your life. Whatever's going on, it's different than the person sitting next to you. The person behind you, it's different than me. What is going on in your life? 
a business situation, a family situation, a marital situation? Do you feel alone? Do you feel scared? Do you feel afraid? What is going on in your life taking a word of God and applying it to this? I wanted to make a couple resources available at the beginning of the year. Oh, my. I'll tell you about that in a second. Did you see that? Uh, okay, so in the foyer, there's a couple resources. First, there's a Bible reading plan uh, that you can pick up. Read through the New Testament this year. That's one resource. Uh, here is an article, a great one-page article by Tim Keller about uh, prayer and meditation. I highly commend this. He's riffing on Martin Luther. And then, frankly, our album, the album that Katie and her team produced, has so many scripture songs. We've already sang, we're about to sing another one. Uh, use this to meditate on God's Word, taking a word of God and applying it to your life, okay? Those are some resources. But let me talk a little bit more about meditation. This is the, I know we've had a lot of information, but this is the payoff right here for this sermon, okay? Stay with me. First, meditation is not emptying your mind. That is Eastern meditation. Christian meditation is filling your mind with God's word and God's promises. It's not emptying your mind home. No, it is taking God's word and applying it directly to your life with his word. The second thing, and this is interesting from this passage, it appears that meditation in the scriptures is Wait for it, you're going to be uncomfortable. Out loud. It does not say, do not let this word depart from your heart or soul. It says, do not let this word depart from your mouth. There's something about praying out loud, praying God's word out loud that impacts us. It's a very modern invention that people would pray quietly to themselves. Third, there's, this, there's the day and night. You do this day and night. Not that you're reading your Bible all the time, but God's promises are informing. They're like a filter over everything that you do. And what this also means is that you're not meditating on other things. This is a quote this week from the Gospel Coalition website. A Christian leader says this about the pandemic. In virtually, I mean, it's a long one. You're going to get it, though. In virtually every church, there is a smaller or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left or to the right. By extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities, people are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces that present a particular political point of view. And the main way it seeks to persuade is not through argument, but through outrage. People are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than they're being formed by the church. And it's creating a crisis. End quote. He's talking about, this author, he's talking about meditating on a news cycle. And let me just say this, as your pastor, if you are consuming more news and commentary than you are scripture, stop it. Stop it and pick up God's word and let it be what, meditate on God's word 12 hours a day. Not that you're reading it, but it's what's filtering through your mind as you face what you're facing in your day. I have a friend who doesn't live here uh, for previous life, as it were. And who I noticed through the pandemic was just becoming more angry and more afraid. And I wondered why. On our sabbatical, I spent more time with him. And you know what? His face was in his phone all the time. He was meditating on the news. This was the discipleship he was getting. Well, he was reading on whatever news, right? Meditate day and night on God's word. Take it to the very real things you are facing and apply it. Let me end with an image and an example from the New Testament. An image first. Eugene Peterson, uh, now with the Lord, uh, 
in one of his books, tells the story of a, a little dog he had when he was, and I'll, this is what I knocked out of here. I actually have this, a dog bone. I brought this, you know. Diana told me to bring a prop to my sermon. So, uh, But Eugene Peterson, uh, Eugene Peterson uh, had his little dog who would gnaw on the bone while he sat and he studied it at Eugene Peterson's feet. And one day, with the dog at his feet, uh, and I've told this story before, Peterson was reading from Isaiah chapter 31, where the God's word says, as a lion growls over his prey. And he was thinking of his little dog who took that bone and you know, he, he delighted in it and he lingered over it and he growled over it and del- he just loved to be with his bone, just gnawing it. You know, you know how a dog is with a bone. Then Peter dis- Peterson discovered that the Hebrew word that is translated growl is also the one that is translated meditate. Stay with me. This would mean how, this is how we would translate chapter 1 verse 8. Do not let this book of law depart from your mouth, but dog with a bone. Meditate on it day and night, turning it over and over, applying to your real life. Let me ask a question. Don't answer out loud. What are you dealing with today? What is it? Marriage, work, children, parents, family. What is it you are dealing with? Take God's word and apply it. Gnaw on the bone until it gets down deep in you. Applying it to your real life. That's, the, that's the, uh, the image. Let me give you an example from the New Testament. Let me show you how one New Testament writer uses this passage from Joshua to deal with what he was struggling with or counseling people with. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. If you want to look at it in your pew Bible, it's page 1009. We're getting close to the end, but if you want to look it up, you should. This is what Hebrews 13, chapter 5 says. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Which is a quote from Joshua chapter 1. Now, uh, show of hands, who deals with discontentment and the love of money? Uh, Come on, everybody else is lying. Um, The author to Hebrews is taking this, he knows that we deal with this. He's right, I struggle discontent, love of money, and he's taking this promise from Joshua 1 and applying it to that issue. Do you feel discontent? Do you feel like a a love of money? Taking the promises of God, gnawing on a bone until it becomes less and less powerful for you, right? You meditate, on, you chew on that word, and all of a sudden, you're not as worried about your money. You're not looking to the person who has more or to the person who has left. What is it you are struggling with? Lay hold of the inheritance that is yours in Christ, meditating like a dog with a bone, day and night, on God's Word. Friends, the gift is ours. It is ours. It is on offer. So this year, 2022, let this be a year that you lay hold of, that you inherit the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and Happy New Year. Let me pray. God, I pray for myself And for everybody within the sound of my voice, that we would lay hold of the inheritance that is ours in Christ. That we would trust the promises. We would lean in and find more and more your goodness to us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.